Mark chapter 12, verse 32. And we're going to finish off what we started last week. If you came last week, we, we began this passage looking at the great commandment, looking at the exchange between Christ and the scribe. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 12, verse 32, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 12, verse 32. And the word of the Lord says, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all of the heart, and with all of the understanding, and with all of the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Lord, we come to you once more as we turn our attention to your word. Be with us, Lord, as we are in your word. Let us uh, receive what you have for us this morning by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I preach the word, that I would do so faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. Amen. So as we continue looking at this exchange between Christ and the scribe, let us reset the scene, if you will. Christ has just answered a series of questions by some religious leaders. They were coming up to him, asking him various questions, attempting to trick him. They were trying to make him look foolish by asking him foolish questions. The latest is a question by a scribe who was an interpreter of the Jewish law. The question brought to Christ was, which is the greatest commandment? Now, since it was common for the Jews to view some commandments as weightier than others, the scribe wanted to know which one this man Christ thought was the greatest of all. Christ answered that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And though the scribe only asked for one commandment, Jesus offers him a second, adding that the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. As I mentioned last week, Christ was pointing them back to the Shema, which was a Jewish creed found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was something that this scribe would have known quite well. As we come to verse 32, the scribe affirms Christ's answer. So he's very impressed by the exchange that he's having with Christ. You are right, he says, agreeing with Christ, that Christ is right for pointing him to the Shema, that knowing God is one and that we are to love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He continues in verse 32, adding that this command is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, you know very well that the Jewish religion required many burnt offerings and sacrifices. It was common knowledge that these are things that God required, but yet the scribe is aware that even greater than burnt offerings and greater than burnt sacrifices is a genuine love for God and a genuine love for your neighbor. And the fact that Christ affirms this made this scribe even more impressed with him. Christ is likewise pleased with the scribe. He's pleased with the way the scribe is responding to him. Rather than continuing to try and trick Christ with more foolish questions, the scribe is agreeing with Christ. He's in a way impressed with Christ. But then Christ responds with a statement that I'm sure the scribe wasn't ready for. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After this, no one dared ask him any more questions. The Jewish leaders came, they tried, and they failed. They couldn't trick him with their questions. Rather than making him out to be a fool, they were the ones who were made out to look foolish. As I mentioned last week, this week's sermon, again, is titled, 
questioning the great commandment part two. And I want us to look at this second part of this exchange between Jesus and this scribe. And I want us to take away a few lessons that we can learn from this passage. What can we learn from this exchange between Christ and the scribe? Number one, all of creation knows of God. Now, I know that might sound a bit shocking to some of you. You may be thinking to yourself, brother, you don't know what you're saying. Have you taken a look at our culture? Have you seen what's out there? How can you say that all of creation knows of God? Well, I think that we need to understand the difference between the knowledge of God and the acknowledgement of God. See, Scripture makes that distinction. And I think our text shows us that the scribe belongs to that former group. Let's look again at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. Now, this passage gives us no indication that this scribe had saving faith. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, it tells us the opposite. It tells us that this scribe didn't have saving faith. But yet he, the scribe, was still able to affirm that God is one and that there is no one beside him. So here we have a man who is not a believer in Christ and for all we know had intentions to fool and deceive Christ, affirm everything that was true about God. He affirmed exactly what the scriptures had to say about God. Now, of course, not all of creation is going to affirm their knowledge of God the same way this scribe did, but all of creation has something in common with this scribe. All of creation can point to the fact that there is a God. And that this God is one God. And here again, you may be saying, how, how can you say that? What about atheists? What about those who don't believe in a higher being? What about those who say the Bible is a fairy tale, the Bible is made up? What about those who say that there are many gods? Well, Scripture says that even they know there is one true God. They may not affirm it on their lips. They may not be like the scribe willing to say publicly that there is one God and there is no one beside him. But though they won't affirm it, they believe it. Romans 1, let me take you there. Romans 1, if you want to turn with me. Verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. We read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." This is the Apostle Paul, and he's addressing the church in Rome, painting for them and us a picture of humanity. And for those who are familiar with this letter to the Romans, you will know that this is Paul's doctoral thesis on the gospel. And in chapter 1, he begins to lay out a clear picture of fallen humanity. He paints for us mankind's real problem. And before he gets to his answer, which is the gospel, he begins laying out the problem here in Romans chapter 1. The problem is the wickedness that is found in mankind. Looking at this passage that we just read here in Romans, let's take it from verse 22 and work our way backwards. It says, claiming to be wise, 
Humanity has become fools. Have you ever spoken to someone who doesn't believe in God? Have you ever spoken to an atheist? They think they are the smartest people in the room. They think that they're so much wiser than you because they somehow avoided believing in this God that them foolish people believe in. Well, they might not say it directly to your face. They may say something like, oh, you believe in God and that's your thing. That's okay, but that's not for me. They may not patronize you, but the truth is they think they, they have some sort of intellectual superiority over you because they don't believe in God. But as verse 21 says, they know God. The problem is not that they don't know God. The problem is that their foolish hearts are darkened. Although they know him, as it says, they do not honor him, nor do they give thanks to him. Rather than being the ones that are wise, they are the ones that are fools. All of their thinking and all of their intellectualism is nothing more, as Scripture says, than futile thinking. You know what that word futile means? Let me read you the definition. It means incapable of producing any useful results. Imagine spending all of that time and money to earn a PhD that doesn't help you produce anything useful. Talk about money not well spent. Even though God is invisible, his attributes of divine power and nature are everywhere. They're, they're plain for all to see. You can't wake up and see a sunrise without knowing God made it rise. You can't feel the wind on a breezy day without knowing God is breathing. Every mountainside, every clear sky, every blue ocean, every marvelous creature reflects his divine nature. We behold the beauty of creation and is screaming to us that there is a beautiful creator. Likewise, every thunderstorm, every lightning strike, every strong wind, every hurricane, every earthquake is reflecting this divine power. As we behold the power of nature, it is saying to us that this nature and this power is subject to even greater power. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm back in Matthew 4? After being tossed to and fro by a voracious storm, Christ speaks to the storm. What does he do? He tells it to be still. And do you remember what the disciples said after that? They said, what kind of a man is this that even the storms obey him? In other words, men don't have that kind of power. And look, I may not know much. I may just be an uneducated fisherman. But when I see strong winds and furious storms, I know that there is something even greater who controls them. And this man, Jesus, did what only God can do. Nature makes it plain to mankind. When you look at creation, it is clear as day that there is a God. No one is without excuse. What can be known about him has been shown to everyone. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is not that people don't know of God because they do. The problem is that they refuse to acknowledge him. The truth about God is there. It is staring them in the face every single day, but they refuse to see it. And rather than embrace the truth, they choose to suppress the truth. In other words, they purposely put away the truth. And how do they do this? Well, Romans tells us, by their unrighteousness, by their wickedness, by their evil deeds, they have exchanged the truth for a lie. Rather than walking in the light, they choose to walk in darkness. They love the darkness. They prefer the darkness. Why? Because in the darkness, they can avoid the light. 
They want no part of the light. The light will expose something to them that they don't want to be exposed to. The light will show them something that they already know is true, but they do not want to see. The light will show them God. And that this God demands full submission. That's a place they don't want to go. Their problem is not that they don't know of God. Their problem is that they want no part of God. And for that, God wouldn't want no part of them. People can claim they don't believe in God all they want, but deep down inside, they know that's a lie. Have you ever heard a tree talk? Have you ever heard a cloud laugh? They do so every day. The tree tells the atheist that he's a liar, and the cloud laughs, mocking the fool for who he is. For only a fool says in his heart there is no God. The first thing that we can learn from this exchange between Christ and the scribe is that all of creation knows of God. Let us go on. What else can we learn about this exchange? Number two, that loving him is more than sacrifice. Look at verse 33. And to love him with all of the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. After affirming the Shema and agreeing with Christ that the first and greatest commandment is loving God and loving your neighbor, the scribe begins to offer some commentary of his own, maybe hoping to impress Christ the way Christ has impressed him. He offers something of his own to the conversation. He says, the first and greatest commandment is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Again, these are things that Jewish people were commanded to do. They were commanded to bring these burnt offerings and these sacrifices. But the scribe says that loving God and loving your neighbor is greater than all of these. And here, he's not wrong. Unlike the other exchanges that Christ was having with the Pharisees that we just read about and the Sadducees, here, the scribe is actually right in what he affirms. It is true that to honor the first and second commandment is greater than burnt offerings and sacrifices. The Old Testament book of Isaiah opens with a tragic scene. There we find a nation in ruins, a nation that has abandoned the God of their covenant, a nation in Israel that has been overthrown by a foreign enemy. And because of their apostasy and because of their refusal to listen and obey God, God gave them over to defeat at the hands of the Assyrians. In the opening chapter, we find the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. And this is the word of the Lord that we find in Isaiah 1, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God had enough of the people's sacrifices. The sacrifices that they were offering to him were nothing more than vain attempts to appease a God who they willfully disobeyed. To act as if they were deeply committed still to serving him. But the truth is, he was no longer their God. They no longer worshiped him as the one true God. They had abandoned him and forsaken him. And for that, God no longer desired their burnt offerings. In fact, as the scripture says, he detested them. No more, he said, 
I can no longer endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Listen to what's being said there. The people of Israel would gather and assemble together in vain. In a a vain attempt to worship God. As if gathering and offering a sacrifice to him would appease him. And he would just look the other way. And he would just overlook their iniquity. I can't help but think of how many people in churches today are doing the same. How many people go to church week after week in a solemn assembly thinking that if I can just check this box here, then God would be okay with me. Never mind that I don't love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never mind that I refuse to love my neighbor as myself. Just like the rebellious Israelites, they come to God with a cold heart and a burnt sacrifice. There are so many people that confuse their service and their sacrifice to God as their love for him. Now, don't get me wrong. When we truly love God, we will want to serve him. We will want to offer sacrifice to him. In fact, we owe him our sacrifice, as Romans 12, 1 tells us. Our love for God will create in us a desire to bring things to him and to do things for him. We will want to give up our time and our resources to serve him. We will want to sacrifice some things in our lives because we want to please him. Please him with our sacrifices. Love and sacrifice are not against one another. Love will always include sacrifice. But here's the thing. Sacrifice will not always include love. Too many people are blinded into thinking that's the case. Too many people are fooling themselves, thinking that they truly love God just because they do something for him. You know, some of you are single here. And those of you who are married were once single. And remember when you were single, you were willing to sacrifice some things for someone you didn't even love yet. You could call it whatever you want. You could call it infatuation. You can call it attraction or whatever. But you couldn't call it love. You didn't love them yet. But when you were single, you used to give up some things for someone you didn't love. It might have been giving up money to pay for dinner. It might have been giving up your dignity and self-respect, trying to ask somebody out who would turn you down. Who knows? The point is, people make sacrifices all the time for people they don't love. And why? Why do we do these things? In this example, anyway, because we were willing to sacrifice something for someone we didn't love. We were willing to do it because we like the idea We like the idea and the possibility of being in a relationship. We may not have loved this person, but we like the idea. And I think a lot of people make sacrifices to God for the same reasons. They may not love him or have any intention to ever love him, but they like the idea of being in a relationship with God. There is some comfort in knowing that God is there. He's not too close. But at least he's there. And if I make these sacrifices, if I go to church, if I give every once in a while, if I sacrifice my weekend to go help clean or help someone move, then maybe that will please God enough and maybe he will remain just there. There are some people, that's all they need. All they need is for God just to be there, for him to be at a safe distance. So if I ever need him, he will come when I call. For him to be pleased enough that when I mess up, he won't punish me too severely. If I can just keep making these sacrifices for him, then maybe I can stay in his good graces. That's what the people of Israel thought. 
Oh, let us keep bringing these sacrifices and these burnt offerings to him. And maybe he'll overlook our rebellion. But God was having none of it. He was having none of it then. And he will have none of it today. He can see right through vain offerings and sacrifices. He can see what's done in vain. He can see the sacrifices that are brought to him in a vain attempt to appease him through religious acts. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 8, we read this. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by the will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now. Understand what's going on here. The author here of Hebrews is speaking about Christ. And he's quoting Christ saying to God the Father that Christ knew that the Father took no desire in burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why? Because these burnt offerings and sacrifices were being done according to the law. Now Christ came into the world to do what? To fulfill the law and to offer up himself as the one and final sacrifice that would please God. So again, understand what's being said here. The problem that people have is not that they desire a sacrifice. In fact, we can say that's a good thing. The problem that people have is that they bring the wrong sacrifice. They're looking to their own sacrifices and their own offerings, thinking that these things will please God. Instead, we should be looking to Christ who is the only sacrifice that can please God. They're looking upon their own works instead of upon the works of Christ. Because of that, they don't know how to love God. Again, as I mentioned last week, the love of the Father requires the love of the Son. Without knowing the Son, we do not know how to love the Father. And until we know the Son and have union with the Son, then we will always be trying to please the Father without the Son. We'll always be trying to please him with our own efforts and our own works and our own sacrifices. But as the scribe acknowledged, to love God and to love your neighbor is much more than all these sacrifices. What the scribe didn't know is that Christ was the only hope in keeping these commandments. And that brings me to my last point. Knowing is not believing. Look at verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Yes, the scribe affirmed something that was true. And Christ was even pleased with his comment about the great commandment being greater than burnt offerings and sacrifices. But the scribe still fell short. Christ saw that his answer was wise Christ was impressed that the scribe had come this far, but yet the scribe had not come far enough. As Christ says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're almost there. You're so close, but you're not there yet. It's good that you know that the Lord God is one God. It's good that you know that there is no one beside this God. These things are good, but there's still more that you need to do. You know, but you don't believe. And that's the problem with many people today. Many people 
know, but they don't believe. And they're fooling themselves, thinking that because they know about Jesus, that they truly believe in him. But like the scribe, they have come far, but have not come far enough. Because see, it's not enough to know about God. As I mentioned earlier, everybody knows. Even atheists know about him. It's not enough to know the facts about Christ, that he's the son of God, that he came to die for sins, that he rose on the third day. I mean, those things are good. If you believe those things, you are not far from the kingdom. If you can recite the Nicene Creed and say, I affirm everything in that creed to be true, then you are close, but you're not close enough. You need to affirm all of that to be true, but you need to come a little further. You need to go from a knowledge of Christ as a Savior to the acknowledgement of Christ as your Savior. Look, biblical belief is more than affirming facts. Biblical belief is placing faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. It is trusting in him and his finished work. Because you can't say that you truly believe if you don't trust. I can say that that chair is sturdy all I want. But unless I trust it enough to sit on it, then it's good for nothing. It's meaningless. The scribe did well by affirming there's a God. The scribe did well by affirming that God is one God and that there is no God like this God. But what he didn't understand was that the way to this God was through this man that he was talking to, was through Jesus Christ. He did well. By believing in God. As James 2.19 says, that's good. But you know what? Even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe that there is one God. Faith is more than just saying some facts. Faith is believing and trusting in the Son. John 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Christ speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is the message to the scribe. And this is the message to the world. Believe in God. That's already a given. We've already put that on the table. We've already established that. Believe in God. That you already do. But you haven't come close enough. Believe also in me. Believe in the Son. You need to abandon all hope and trust in yourself. Thinking that your burnt offerings and your sacrifices are enough to appease a holy God, thinking that you can keep the great commandment on your own and thinking that knowing mere facts is good enough to get you to God. Look, we look out in the world, we see people affirm this all the time. People say they love God. People say they love their neighbor. In fact, the world is saying that they love their neighbor better than the church right now because they're involved in social justice and everything. But do they truly know the Son? They don't know the Son. And for that, they don't know the Father. They don't know how to keep the first and second commandment. They're fooling themselves into thinking they can. Just like the scribe. The scribe came to Christ with a question about the law. He believed that he was an expert on the law. And that maybe he can catch Christ in a mistake. But Christ showed him that he was the one who was mistaken. He was mistaken by thinking the law was good enough to please the Father. Little did he know that all of his studies and all of his interpretations and everything that he was seeking in God's word 
was staring him in the face. It was right in front of him in this man, Jesus Christ. Not by rules, not by commandments, but by faith in the Son of God. Believe in God, Christ says. Believe also in me. Amen. Let us pray. Let us stand up and pray.